Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. So thanks for joining the podcast today. We're going to be talking about racism as a public health crisis, as um, Bloomberg City Lab and the American Public Health Association have recently published articles in which cities and counties across the United States in the wake of um, various Black Lives Matter protests have released declarations that racism is a public health crisis. We took a look at some of those 50 cities and counties to see what was the language inside of those declarations, how much strength or teeth did they have in the um, policies, and then we're going to present some recommendations for improvement to really addressing racism as a public health crisis. And so the um, first couple of places that we looked at were King County in Washington, Montgomery County in Maryland, and um, two towns in Michigan. Do you want to talk about the ones in Montgomery and Montgomery County and King County first? Yeah, I think even thinking back to how in the month of June, you know, we're in the face of global pandemic, and and then we broke out into what felt like a you know a race war, a race uprising, yeah. and how that took a toll on it seemed like the first time in recent history that every sector was able to see the toll that racism was taking on the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that same way every sector wanted to be involved, involved. And I think this was the public health community way of saying, wait, like we care too. Um, but, you know, so I think this was their way of doing it and making and taking a stance when everyone was putting out statements to, mm-hmm. for the most part, say their ass. Um, but I do think there's like good things that can come from raising these issues in communities. Um, I think in the field of the statement, racism is a public health crisis is not new, but I think for people who are not in the planning public health environment fields that is a new statement and a new thing that they haven't really thought about together um and i think for a lot of people just joining into the movement or becoming quote-unquote woke i think that most people of color particularly black people can see how racism penetrates almost every aspect of their life from employment to health to insurance to job opportunities to where you can live, where you can go to school, education. I think Black people in particular can see clearly, like, obviously, why else, why wouldn't racism be a public health crisis? Racism a crisis in every other category, why not now? But I do think that in some ways, it's good to see city councils and county governments kind of taking a stance to address it because of the overlapping issue of we have the racism that's flaring up and becoming 
more prevalent in mainstream media because it was always prevalent amongst people of color we've always talked about it but now it seems other people are talking about it and then with that overlapping with COVID I think it's a good opportunity for public health associations and public health practitioners to really look at how race plays into different health disparities. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And even for a place like Seattle and King County and Washington State, I think they've been very race forward over the last decade in a way that other jurisdictions have not. And you lived um, there for a long time. I did. <laughs> I spent most of my life, I'm biased, I spent most of my life uh, in King County. Um, and it's a very racially diverse place. Um, and so in that way, I am proud to, you know, have grown up there in a, in a mm. jurisdiction that was fighting for things and even exposed me, you know, when I was studying planning in undergrad uh, in Seattle, was able to use the place I lived as an example of a place that was, you know, doing things. But even in their statement, you know, for them to open with, you know, today we declare that racism is a public health crisis. It kind of goes back to today, like, <laughs> did we not know this mm -hmm. before? I almost would have rather they start um, with the history and the the statement didn't really uh, get into the history too much. Um, I think some of the other ones I will talk about gave a good background. Um, they gave a background to some of the other initiatives that they've launched. For instance, like I mentioned back in 2008, they launched the Equity and Social Justice Initiative. Um, and then they passed a Equity and Social Justice Ordinance. Um, they've been, you know. Like, what was the content of them? Did they have any actions behind them or you're not sure? Um, from what I remember, a lot of it just required internal work mm -hmm. for their local government to start certain task force to hire you know racial equity directors and they did all of those things um i'd be interested to see kind of like in a comprehensive plan way it was there a 10-year goal mm -hmm. for certain benchmarks are we there yet you know that's what I don't, i'm not sure so um, i looked at two in um michigan and i thought that they were better than some of the other ones they started out with kind of a history we understand race is a social construct. We understand that race has been used to undermine and, and treat certain people as less than other classes, but it has no scientific um, basis or binding. And then they kind of went into, here are action items. It was interesting though that the declaration was racism is a public health crisis and their action items were around policing. And so, I thought, well, that was, <laughs> you know, they were trying to slide that in just to like really address rape policing, but particularly in that Ingham County um, in Michigan, they were saying that they were going to look into their police task force. And they were trying to create a civilian review board over their police officers so that if a instance of excessive force or something like that came up, it wasn't just an internal uh, investigation between the police department, who's his, that police officer staff and that police officer that violated or is accused to be violating some policy. They wanted to have non-legal, non-police, basically a non-biased civilian review board also looking at those investigations to provide extra insight. So I thought that that was one of the more progressive and um, 
actionable items that was in one of these resolutions, but it wasn't around health. It was around policing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It almost sounds like they took a, their statement for police brutality and just applied it to public health, which kind of misses a mark of the background of, you know, Blacks losing their lives at the hands of police violence. That's a public health issue just as, you know, we have what the most, you know, every year, you know, like heart disease is one of the top deaths or, you know, suicide or uh, car crashes or, you know, things like that. I think death by police violence is definitely, yeah you know, a risk factor for Black communities. So policing only touches that, really. When you look at some of the data that the CDC puts out, and it talks about the number one um, causes of death for different race uh, backgrounds. The number one cause of death for all Americans is heart disease. Like we really have to get a hold on our diets and our physical activity, but it is impacting African-American communities in particular higher, but talking about policing and violence, Homicide is the 20th cause of death among white Americans, the 18th cause of death among Hispanics, Hispanics, but it's the seventh highest cause of death among Black people. And it's the highest cause of death among Black men in particular between the ages of zero to 35. And so wow. Black men between the ages of zero to 35, you're more likely to be murdered either by a police officer, by a white terrorist, by another black person, by anyone, more than you are likely to die from heart disease or even in a car accident. And that's scary to think about. And I think that gets at the topic that we're, you know, uh, that get, that I think it's something that a lot of these resolutions skirted around mm -hmm. is that that is the public health issue. <laughs> um, you know, that's the core of it rather than just, you know, racism and and how you know we see it presented in mainstream media when it's convenient mm -hmm. versus the day-to-day -day impact it has on People's black lives. lives yeah exactly um so what do you think about resolutions that are in some ways non-binding this isn't a, a city ordinance saying we're going to address racism they're not putting out a new policy like they can issue out new traffic tickets like what do you think about non-binding um resolutions yeah that's a good question i think it's a good start to the conversation um i think and then in that way i think it starts the conversation um, I would just, there's just so much more that would need to be done because it would be really sad if all these resolutions that came out this year sit on a shelf, <laughs> you know, sit in a, in a, um, archive mm -hmm. where nobody really addresses it and nobody really pulls it out. And so I think I, it would really be the responsibility of the local jurisdictions to hold themselves responsible. And I think I would also want to see residents hold their jurisdictions responsible yeah to me it falls under it's like a step above a black lives matter mural on a street it's like <laughs> thank you for acknowledging us and acknowledging our cause and our movement um that's the mural that's the acknowledgement i think the 
codification of racism as a public health crisis in a resolution, like in a filed document that's archived with the city or with the county, it's just a step above that. But without having actionable steps to say the county is going to do this, the county is going to do that, the city is going to do this, it is just a start. And I think that is unfortunate because in 2020, I'd like to think that we are past starts. Um, we've dealt with the issue of racism in this country for many years, many decades, people's lifetimes, I'd like to be further than we're gonna start looking at the issue. Um, and people have looked at it. It's not these cities and counties that have things in their resolutions that are saying, you know, we wanna assess the issue, we wanna promote um, health equity, are missing the mark, and that's a whole different conversation about how academics can get their research into the hands of practitioners. But there's been tons of research at many universities mm -hmm. that look at how Black people and Hispanics and Asian American communities are impacted differently from a health perspective. And I don't think that cities need to continue to assess the issue. They need to start working on how they're going to address the issue. Yeah, and I think earlier we were talking about how, you know, this is not a new issue for the people who are experiencing it. Um, and, uh, you know, aside from the policing issue that kind of brought this trend of uh, resolutions to the forefront, what do you think, like, how would you package the current state of, you know, health in the country for non-white populations, whether that's Black, Latinx communities, Asian um, communities, immigrant communities. Um, what are what are some things that come to mind for you in terms of health health issues? So thinking through kind of the causes of death that are related to kind of the place where you live and associated with your environment that you grew up in. I look at obesity, and so I'm pulling all this data from the CDC. They put out um, annual reports of health data across the country, and they look at it by different races, ethnicities. So the first one I looked at was obesity among adults. And so nationwide, the prevalence of obesity is about 9.2%, so that's about 9% of the American population is obese. When you look at it from the different races, it's white Americans are at that mark, 9.3% classified as obese. His non-Hispanic black, which is African-American black populations are at 13.8%, much higher than the national average. You look at Asian communities, they're only at 2%, much lower than the national average. And then Hispanic communities are at 7%, which is a little bit less but the black Americans are severely struggling. Then you look at it for children. So that was looking at adults. Children, it's the same issue. And basically you learn, if you are a child and you're obese, you're gonna potentially grow up to be an adult that's obese. Especially if you live in a community without free recreation programs and et cetera, et cetera, that you can work towards improving your physical activity. Well, Jasmine, I think you just said something that I find that the CDC fails to mention, mm -hmm. um, because I think the CDC um, can sometimes perpetuate, while this is, you know, good data to have, and, you know, data can tell a story, some of the issues I have with the CDC is that they will put out the numbers, but it lacks context. So, you know, you, 
Yeah, you just said like they may not live in an area with recreation areas. CDC would just be like black people are fat and yeah. healthy and they eat. They There's don't eat good food. There's something about the lifestyle that makes them this way. But right. forgetting the fact that their lifestyles are a product of their environment. And that's what we're going to get into in talking about in these action items. There are stuff that cities and counties control. They control their parks budget. They control their streets and transportation budget. They can actually do things to improve health disparities. Four Degrees to the Streets podcast brings you Block by Block, a new segment highlighting infrastructure developments from all across the world. Shout out to the District of Columbia and the District Department of Transportation for installing car-free lanes along M Street Southeast between 10th Street and Half Street Southeast in the Navy Yard neighborhood. During peak periods in the morning and the evening, this lane will only allow travel for buses and people riding bikes. In the current fiscal year, 2021, DDOT received $5.9 million to support infrastructure improvements to help prioritize bus travel. This project includes making the H and I Street bus lanes permanent and completing the 16th Street dedicated bus lanes. Finally, this project will fund improvements to bus stops to be compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. Thank you to DDOT for prioritizing all modes of transportation, regardless of ability. So that brings us to our conversation about the built environment and that being your environment can really influence the things that you have access to, to impact your ability to be physically active, your ability to eat well. And so for all the cities and counties out there that have these resolutions that don't have quote unquote actionable items, we put together a list of some of the things that you can do for the budgets that you control, your parks department budget, your streets and transportation budget, um, thinking about your highways and things like that. So um, let's get into that. I think the first one we wanna talk about is transportation access and, and bicycle lanes in, in particular. Yeah, and I, I think transportation is a, it's always a sensitive, it's a sensitive topic, but it's a topic I'm passionate about. It's, you know, what I started to focus on towards the end of, um, the, end, the end of my master's program in city and regional planning, um, because I realized, you know, there's, there's transportation engineering, there's, um, you know, looking at highway design. And I found that the transportation that affects people the most um, is the things that most of us do at some point in time, whether that's walking to cross the street, whether that's taking public transportation, if we live in an area that has it, whether that's getting in a car, you know, transportation just affects all different, you know, types of people. Um, however, the access to transportation for these groups are not always equal. Um, just from the being in the field and just some of the things that I've observed, uh, you know, every year when public transportation authorities are looking at their budget every year, they have to think about what bus routes they're going to cut. Um, even this year, most recently, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transportation Authority, or WMATA, the metro for the, U, for the capital region in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, they have proposed a lot of different bus routes. And cities had to take a look at them what we what was given to us and say no this doesn't fit if you cut this route this is limiting this specific neighborhood that is mostly black um 
from getting to places that they need to go. Um, or in that same vein, as we know, a lot of residents are being pushed out as housing costs increased. I don't think we talk about enough that we are increasing the time and the cost of transportation for these people who may used to have lived in the city where they were. Now they have to live maybe in the suburbs and they have to sit for on metro for two hours and they have to pay and those it's costs which are the not time, cheap it's increasing transportation time for people who have the least time possible and time is right. very valuable people who can get to work and if they're five minutes late could reasonably lose their job versus you have people who are directors of programs or ceos of things and they can get to work late and they can miss meetings and it's no big deal but those entry-level staff workers or clerical staff, they don't have that luxury of being late because the bus was late or because my childcare wasn't on time because they're taking the bus to get to me and different things like that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's truly a, it's truly a, 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 I guess, unintended consequence, but um, it impacts a lot of people's lives. Um, and I think another thing too, for instance, those routes that were proposed, the board voting on these changes to the public transportation system, they don't always look like the people who are actually taking public transportation. No, they just don't know. <laughs> they just don't know. It's rare. Um, and so I, I would just push to local jurisdictions to elect and nominate transit board members who actually represent the people who take it um what yeah and I, I think i'll just you know close with the, the option of what transportation you want to take is a powerful thing um i can recognize my own privilege that i have a car i can choose whether i want to drive somewhere i can choose because i live close to a metro i can choose to take the metro um, there's mostly sidewalks around where I live. I can, you know, I can choose to walk. Those are options that greatly impact my quality of life um, because my Apple Watch tells me how many calories I burn going up and down those metro escalators. Um, you know, either way, that choice is so important <laughs> and it shouldn't be only for like a select, select group of people. Um, so... And so the connection that transportation and particularly transit and bicycling and walking have to public health is you have to use your body to get to the train, to mm -hmm. get to the bus. You bicycle, you're exerting energy. And so that helps you, like you're talking about burn calories. That helps you move from, okay, I ate all of this today, but I'm I know I'm going to be able to work it off on my commute back home or my way to the grocery store. But if your community is reliant on the your car, even if it's not your own personal vehicle, you don't have the luxury of taking walks. I mean, in the COVID, looking outside of my neighborhood, people are walking up and down the street all day. If you live in a neighborhood where there's no sidewalks, you could literally be in the middle of the street. Yeah. Now that's dangerous. I can get hit by a car. I wouldn't want to walk or on that street. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to walk. So those built environment, I say built environment, meaning the, the structure of your neighborhood really influences your ability to be physically active. Another around the same vein is park access and park quality. And so 
park access is your ability to get to a public park or an open space so that you can be physically active or just relax and chill in a park. The um, Trust for Public Land is a nationwide kind of advocacy group that advocates for public spaces and parks across America. And they have a metric that they use called the 10 minute walk ratio. They want every American to live within a 10 minute walk of a park. They did a study for every city basically across you as you could type in New York and we'll have all of the links to these data files and etc in the show notes but you can type in your city so I typed in Los Angeles because I was curious about a place that I know is not very walkable but has a lot of um, diversity and segregation in their neighborhoods and so in Los Angeles one million um, white Americans live within a 10 minute walk of a park compared to under 250,000 Black Americans in Los Angeles. So that means that if I'm Black and I live in Los Angeles, I'm more likely to have to travel very far to get to a park. But if I'm white and I live in Los Angeles, there's probably five or six parks around me in less than a 10 minute walk. And that's not So do you feel like the history of segregation in LA designed what we see today in terms of blacks and access to parks yeah i mean you look at la and you can see where the parks are located and then you can look at where black neighborhoods are you have south central you have the view park area you have the ladera heights area and those are well to do black people anyway and then you have further areas like inglewood and compton which are lower income and then you see where the parks are and you can see that they just start to dissipate as you go further south in the city and or in the county rather and i'd like to think that in my younger days i would think it was unintentional <laughs> As I've grown and studied planning more and learned about some of the ways that planning, which we talked about in other episodes, planning contributes to racism, I know that that's not an accident. I know it's not an accident that I have to travel 30 minutes to get to a park because I live in South Central, but if I live in Beverly Hills, I can get to one in five minutes. That's not. It's just wild that literally a portion of the earth something that we all come into and we should have equal access to access to green space access to just an open environment is a commodity that only select people feel is for them um and should be preserved for them and not others it just completely blows my mind And then the the consequences of that is if I can't get to a park, now I need to pay for a gym membership and I don't have money to pay for a gym membership. So I'm just not going to work out or I'm not going to go for walks. I'm not going to take my child to the park. So now my mental health is being compromised because I'm surrounded by concrete and asphalt and I have to travel to see a patch of grass. And then my physical health is compromised. And so you wonder why diabetes are up, obesity is up, heart disease is up. That's part of the reason. Related to getting to a park is what does that park look like once you get there? Yeah. And so that talks about park quality. Are the swings there? 
Do the basketball hoops have nets? Do they have rims? Forget having a net. Do they have rims? <laughs> Is there weeds growing out of the basketball net? Are there even space to have trails? Some parks are so small, you can only have a bench and a garbage can, and that's the park that you can get to in 10 minutes. And I think New York City is being really proactive about this. I've attended a lot of conferences where the current parks commissioner, Mitchell Silver, um, is working with an initiative they have called the Community Parks Initiative. So they did an assessment of the amount of capital investment, which is the amount of money that the Parks Department has put into reconstructing um, a park, not just day-to-day -day maintenance, from 1992 to 2003. They, and I'll put the graphic on the show notes, they mapped out the parks that received less than $250,000 over that 20-year time span. All of those parks were in East Brooklyn, Harlem, and the Bronx. And if you know anything about New York City, that is where the Black and Hispanic population lives. The parks that have received more than $10 million in that time period, period are in Lower Manhattan, downtown Brooklyn, and certain parts of Staten Island, which if you know New York, are the parts where white Americans and Asian Americans live. And so I commend New York City um, Parks Commissioner Mitchell Silver and the mayor of New York um, for uh, basically establishing a fund where they're going to redirect the Parks Department's budget to those parks that haven't received funding over the past 20 years. And I think that's a really good way of them putting, you know, if it doesn't have funding, it doesn't happen. So I think it's a really good way of them doing something actionable to put their money where their mouth is, basically. Yeah, and the saddest part about it is, again, it's an initiative. I think this is something that the Parks Commissioner talked about in his last uh, conference was, this is something that is happening because the mayor of New York City cares about it. But what happens when the mayor changes mm -hmm. and the new mayor doesn't care about it? Do we go back to normal? Do we have another graph from 2020 to 2040 and the same communities are back without parks? Or worse, it looks like everything is fine because gentrification has pushed these people out into New Jersey and into, into Long Island. And so we they don't even have to deal with the quote-unquote equity issues because the population has dissipated. Right. And so park quality is related to health because are you going to use a park where everything is rusted, where there's garbage everywhere? And cities love to have park cleanup days. And it's like, but you guys aren't doing your part. I have no incentive <laughs> right. to pick up trash if it's going to take y'all two months to come clean the garbage cans out. That's not, you can't expect the community to, to do the work of maintenance workers and public works. Department. Exactly. While you were talking, I actually thought about another episode <laughs> um, about basically mental health and the built environment um, and how it impacts you. I personally feel like I've seen, I've been more conscious of my mental health, how I perceive, how I feel in the environment where I live now that I've had to be at home, you know, for months, um, given the coronavirus. So y'all stay tuned for that, <laughs> for that episode. Um, but on the same, continuing on the same lines of access um, and the things that are solvable, food deserts, 
is essentially when somebody lives in an area where they cannot easily get to a grocery store or supermarket. More specifically, um, if 33% of the population lives over a mile from a supermarket or a large grocery store. And depending on where you live, that can be a major inconvenience to know that you can't go to the grocery store on your way home. Maybe you're picking up your kids from school and there's not a grocery store that you, you know, that you can easily get to that has the things you're looking for, whether that's because, you know, not all grocery stores are equal that has fresh produce that has a wide selection of, you know, you know, I'm trying to think of what it's called, <laughs> dry stuff behind the produce aisles, um, proper proteins that you can feed your family. And the food is is of good quality too. Like you go in some stores and yes, we have apples, but they're soft. Exactly. In the banana bread. Well, I'm not buying those. Yeah. So thank you for not. And are the stores, you know, freshly, freshly stocked. And so this is, mm. a, that's a huge point of stress. And, you know, the fact that it can cost more money to even get to the store then maybe what you need to get. And back as we were talking about transportation, not everybody has a yeah. car. L lugging groceries is a major concern that people have to factor into their day-to-day -day lives. How am I going to get these groceries on the bus? How am I going to, am I going to have to call an Uber to take groceries? On a personal note, I don't have a car and I lived in the city of Atlanta, which you should have a car. If you live in it, anybody listening to <laughs> move to Atlanta, buy a car. Cause it's, it's hard, it's impossible. I had to literally decide my apartment where I was gonna live in Atlanta based on bus routes and if the bus route passed the grocery store. Because if it mm -hmm. didn't, that meant that I'd have to ask my roommates every single time I wanted to get a loaf of bread, they could take me to the store because it was gonna be too hard. Found one and my route to the grocery store meant that I had to cross under two interstate highways and a six lane road to get to the grocery store. And so I felt unsafe. I was like, I'm not, I did it for about three or four tries. And I said, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just can't, I'm, I just can't do it. So I ended up spending more money. Um, I put, and it's the worst thing you could possibly do. I put my credit card on my Lyft account. I had to take Lyft from the grocery store to my house. And I literally lived less than a quarter mile away but it was such a treacherous walk that i just didn't feel safe one being a woman and then two being a person on a street where there are no other people everybody is in a vehicle and i was like i can't go through this every single time i need to go to the grocery store and so put my little lift on my credit card i take lift to and from the grocery store because it was just impossible yeah like it adds up it can easily for somewhere that is maybe less than two miles away, that can easily be a $10 lift ride, you know, $20 round trip. Maybe you only spent $40 at the grocery store, but you just had a $60 journey. It's a lot. Um, well, in 2019, Lyft, uh, I think, recognized this. And I think what they started was really commendable with their grocery access program. They have it in several different cities now. Um, I was most familiar with the one that started in D.C., but it provided eligible families lift rides one way for $1.25, which is less than bus fare in the region. So I think it's, ooh, it's been so long since I've had to think about um, Metro during COVID, but I think bus fare might be $2.25, um, $2, depending. 
um, and then 250. Sorry to distract you. Is the bus in DC area like the trains? Is it distance based or is it a flat fare? Buses are flat fare. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but 250 round trip to participate in grocery stores. And I was like, oh, this is great. And my initial thoughts were, oh, I hope this is going to be widely promoted. I hope this is something that's going to be easy to use, easy to sign up. I think back in 2019, I went through the process of trying to see what the form looked like online. I think I thought it was pretty simple. Um, and then as we were talk getting ready for this episode, I wanted to go back and see what the data was on who they actually impacted in that trial. And it's something they've still been doing in the region. Um, but at least between the six month trial period, they were able to enroll 400 families, the local nonprofit food bank helped enroll 400 families. Um, and those families took over 5,000 lift rides to and from grocery stores. Um, and was able to connect them as we were talking about with healthy quality food options. Um, and it cut their commute time by 50% to get those groceries. And so I think that's great. I think Lyft is on it <laughs> in terms of using their imp, using their body of drivers and their notability to do something positive in the community on that same, along those same lines I would like to see the businesses who are getting involved and the uh, grocery stores that are getting involved and the residents who are getting involved in the program to really all band together and see what they can do to make this a permanent change. And I think a permanent change is actually getting grocery stores in those communities so they don't have to get in the lift at all. I think that I think that is what would be a more long-term solution. This is a temporary solution. This is a Band-Aid. This helps. Um, but, you know, they they wouldn't need a lift if they had a grocery store walking distance and well i think that was what new york city was trying to do with their fresh initiative so i'm not sure if the program is still happening but they were giving um zoning bonuses to uh supermarkets that located in particular neighborhoods that new york city had identified as food deserts one that they worked on um was the Morrisania neighborhood in the Bronx, um, which is predominantly Hispanic, low-income neighborhood in the Bronx, and they received a grocery store. I don't remember the data of looking at, I know they did a before and after study to see how um, people were using the store, but I know that that is one way if you give grocery stores kind of an incentive to locate here okay we're going to get a bigger layout we don't have to comply with some of the parking requirements and things like that that can be an incentive to get grocery stores in food desert neighborhoods for sure and i think as food desert is becoming more understood as a concept and a problem i think cities are trying to get ahead of it and i think programs like you just mentioned the fresh initiative help create that tangible you know because grocery stores are not incentivized to place themselves in lower income areas they would rather against it um yeah they'd rather be somewhere where there's a high disposable income um so that's that's a challenge and i just i hate I like initiatives because they get the problem done, but I really like to see things embedded into our systems because initiatives change with government. If mm -hmm. the mayor cares about initiative, it happens. If they don't, then it doesn't happen. Money doesn't go towards it. I really like to see these programs embedded in 
city and county and state day-to-day budgets and their annual fiscal year responsibilities because initiatives are like fads. While everyone is talking about a food desert, we're going to do something right now. But once people stop talking about it, we're going to stop putting our money towards that initiative and it's going to Yeah, it can be very temporary. And I think, you know, what we just touched on gets back to the resolutions we were mentioning at the beginning of the show that this is something that could be a line in one of those resolutions that we will work with grocery stores and, you know, we have a goal of increasing grocery access per mile, you know, something. Um, because the fact that we have to, that, that, that local governments have to create initiatives to get companies to want to go to lower income, mostly black or Hispanic neighborhoods, that's racism. <laughs> that's racist. <laughs> like that they don't want to be in those areas. Uh, for whatever reasons, um, mostly based on different prejudices and stereotypes uh, that they think it's going to hurt their bottom line. That is racism. That is affecting the quality of food people can eat and, you know, making them high risk populations when a global pandemic hits. (laughs) One area in which um, there is a prevalence and a high, you can find them everywhere, unlike grocery stores, is convenience stores and places that sell lottery tickets and tobacco products and stuff like that. Those can be found everywhere in low-income in um, Latinx and African-American communities. So a study um, at Harvard looked at the presence of those tobacco advertisements um, in two neighborhoods in Massachusetts. They found that while the two neighborhoods, the predominantly white, predominantly high income, and the predominantly black, predominantly low income neighborhood had about the same number of stores, about 56 in the black community and about 43 in the white community. There were a total of 400 ads across those almost 100 stores. 308 of those ads were in the black community. Mm. Less than 100 were distributed across those 43 stores in the white community. Whereas that's that's about like three ads per store in the black neighborhood. And they linked this study to uses of tobacco among youth, uses of hookah products and cigarello products and black and mild and things like that. And it's higher among African-Americans and particularly among youth. And they're making the case that if you reduce these advertisements, yeah you can reduce the usage of tobacco products. So New York City, try, New York City is it's a really cool place. They always trying to do something really good. I always like New York <laughs> City. They got a lot of things going on that Stop and Frisk was real crazy, but sometimes they do really good things. Yeah, I'm learning. And <laughs> one of the things that they had was um, a no tobacco pharmacy ban. So any of the pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, even if your shop right or your grocery store sells tobacco products in like the pharmacy section, they discontinued, like you couldn't do that anymore in New York in any of the five boroughs. That sounds great. Like that's really good if you live near CVS or Walgreens or Rite Aid. But we know that most low-income communities don't have those big brand stores. They have the bodegas and the corner stores, and those have a plethora of tobacco products. So these researchers at Columbia University and their School of Public Health looked at the prevalence of tobacco products 
um, before and after this ban based on neighborhood. And what they found was neighborhoods in the South Bronx, East and Central Harlem, North and Central Brooklyn, which were already identified as high risk for tobacco, experienced little to no change in the presence of tobacco sales in their community. So this is a perfect example of a city trying to do the right thing. We're trying yeah. to ban tobacco products because we want people to stop smoking. And we, want, we know the consequences like lung cancer and lung disease on health. But you have to realize that because of racism, CVS and Rite Aid and um, Walgreens aren't in these low-income minority communities. So that policy doesn't help them. And this study literally shows that they looked at every one of these stores in New York City. And it literally shows they didn't help at all. And so now we have to go back and, and rework the policy to say, we need to ban them across the city, not just in big name stores, but across the city in total. And so it's just a lot of, we have a lot of work to do, but if you're listening and you want actionable items, here are some things that you can do. I think that's, that, I think that's really interesting that they were heading towards the mark and then they missed it. And it's hard to even blame, you know, anybody. I, however, I do wonder when these decisions are happening, who in the room, I think, because if me or you were in the room, I think some, we could have been like, I don't think those, those stores are really in the areas that you think you're trying to serve. And I think that's another commonality with planning as a whole is I think a lot of times we're not actually listening to the people we think we're trying to help. Um, I think a lot of times we are making assumptions and back in school, I would always wonder when we would look at certain geography data and census data and make these huge assumptions about what these communities need. And it's like, I wonder if they know that we sit up here for hours <laughs> trying to figure out what they are lacking or what they need or what they don't need or what their issues are when we could just go there potentially or be more inclusive in hiring practices or um, how we, you know, seek input rather than sitting for hours, making assumptions, twiddling our thumbs. Um, but that's a different episode. <laughs> so we talked about transportation from transit to buses to highways. We talked about park access and park quality. We talked about food deserts. We talked about tobacco advertising. And so there are at least six or seven ways that cities and counties, if they really want to champion health disparities and minimize some of the gaps between health among white Americans and health among Black Latinx and Asian Americans, there are some really tangible things they can do beyond putting out a resolution. Yeah. And I think that that's super helpful. And it's up to our local leaders to to take that information that's already exists out there. I mean, we look this stuff up in the time span of two weeks, mm -hmm. and it's just two of us. They have whole staffs dedicated to this, making lots of money they can look this stuff up and they can pull the data for their specific neighborhood or do the study themselves and find out how they can really, really address change without the symbolism that is really tired. Well said. The information is there. This is not new. Racism as a public mm -hmm. health crisis is not new. Racism isn't new. 
um, urban planning being racist is not new. <laughs> um, so, you know, let us be resourceful in how we create mm. real change and be, um, you know, uh, rest in peace, John Lewis, who recently passed away, but, you know, create good trouble and be on the right side of history when, it, when we have an opportunity to do so.